All right, well, thank you, Rich. Well, I guess Reformation Sunday is a fitting Sunday to conclude our study of the gospel um, since it was recovered and clarified during that period of church history. So for those of you who are new, I've met a few new people today. Uh, on Sunday mornings, one of the things we do is we, we try to help you guys identify some really core elements of the Christian life and that we want you to focus in on. We call them core convictions so that you can understand what they are, you can deepen your convictions on those areas, you can articulate them, learn to live by these convictions. And we've been studying um, this, the theme of the gospel. We asked the question, what is, what is the gospel? That's been the, the study thus far. And we wanted to really emphasize this, and we've done it for, I guess, 10 weeks now, a uh, 10-week emphasis. Um, we wanted to emphasize this because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is of first importance to him. The gospel is of first importance. So we don't want to, if, if we get everything else wrong, we want to get the gospel right. And I don't want us to get everything else wrong, okay? So don't hear me saying that. Uh, there's a lot to know. But we want to nail the gospel down to make sure that we've responded correctly to it and we know the Lord um, and we're walking with Him. So we've said, when we're looking at the gospel message, we're trying to answer that question, what is the gospel? There's four themes, really, that we need to get our minds around when we're thinking about the gospel. What are they? Just for review. Number one, God. We need to know who God is, right? As the Bible describes God. And then, what else do we need to know? Man, who we are, right? And then, what else? Christ, yes. And finally, response, yes. So, what do we need to know about God? We just boil it down. There's a lot we need to know about the Lord, but what do we get from the first pages of Scripture? He's our creator, right. And why is that important? We're accountable to him. him. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. We're not autonomous. We can't just do whatever we want. He's the one who made us. And so he has all rights over his creation, including humanity. And what about this creator jumps out to us from the first pages of Scripture? That he's good. Yes, and why is that important? We would be doomed if he wasn't. That's right. Yeah. But he is, he's, he's fundamentally good, right? So all that he does is good. And so to rebel against him is evil. Like that is, that is like the worst thing that his creatures could do, right? Is to turn away from this good, benevolent, kind God. And it assures us that God's goodness then means it kind of moves in two directions. Do you remember what, what directions his goodness moves in? It moves toward mercy. Yeah, that's the one we like to think about. And then what else, what else does his goodness move toward? Justice. Justice and punishment for evil. He would not be good if he ceased to punish evil. If he failed to do that, he would not be good if he didn't show mercy. So how do these things come together, right? They come together in the cross. So we see this tension build throughout Scripture, and then it's finally resolved in the cross, where, where the, the hymn writer says, justice and mercy meet. In the cross, he pours out his wrath on his son, and he freely gives mercy to all who would, who would repent and come to him. So that's what we need to know about God, that he's good. What do we need to know about ourselves? Yep, we're made in his image, and we need to start there. Why? Before we go to sin. Why do we need to start with the fact that we're made in God's image? Yeah. 
It does. Yep, it, it puts a greater emphasis on, the, on how far we've fallen, right? So we're made in God's image. What does that mean? Okay, yeah, we're to give glory to him. That's what we, we bring him glory. But how do we bring him glory? Think pre-fall. Okay, obedience. Yeah, as we trust him and obey him, we have a mission, right? And we reflect God to the world. That's what being in his image means. We, we reflect God. We kind of showcase to the world what God is like. And humans do that. Humans are God's image bearers, and we were created for a purpose. We were created to to extend his reign and rule over all the earth as we take dominion, right? So we have a very, very strategic role in, in God's plan for the world. And yet, we didn't fulfill that role, did we? We turned away from that role. We tried to usurp God to be gods ourselves in the fall when we, when we went with the forbidden tree. And we looked at that in depth. We looked at the fall and how pervasive that is, that we are totally... Depraved, meaning we're, t- we're, we're in full rebellion against God. Even if we look clean on the outside, we want to be God. We want to live for ourselves. We, want to di- we don't want anyone over us telling us what to do, including God, our Creator. And so that's the plight that we were in. That's what we need to know about ourselves. So we desperately need a Savior, right? And we, we need to know about Christ. So what, do we, what in particular do we need to know about Jesus? Again, we're just reviewing here as we land the plane today. What do we need to know about him? Hang on just a second. Yep. Okay, good. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. Yeah, that's excellent. So those are our two major pieces. The life of Christ, why is that important? We just said it, life we should have lived, but what's significant, what's significant about his life, his sinless life? That's right. Yep. Yep. And we, we need something, right? We lack righteousness. So we need the obedience of the Son in our place. We need His righteousness credited to us. His righteous life, His obedient life, because we're not obedient. So He earned that for us in His, in his perfect life, in his, in his righteous life. Then His death, right? So sin had to be punished. So His death was our substitutionary death as well. So He died the death we should have died in our place. But did God leave him in the grave? No, what happened? Resurrection, right? Resurrection and ascension, which we talk about the life, death, and then the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Why is that significant? It validates yeah, who he is, his position, his authority, as the Son of God, as the Messiah. So there's validation that's happening. Yeah. Yep, it gives hope for resurrection for us, so that death's not the final word for, for people. Somebody over here have something? Yeah. Yep, it shows that God accepted Christ's substitution on our behalf. Yeah. All these things in the resurrection, super significant about his, his resurrection life. And then what was the last thing that we need, to, we need to also think about when we're thinking about Jesus and what he's accomplished? What's the fourth major event? Life, death, resurrection, and... We talked about ascension, but return, his return. He's coming again. He's coming again to save his people and to judge his enemies, right? So he's, he's coming again as judge. We've, we looked at some passages where, like Acts 17, where Paul's 
preaching the gospel for the first time, and really one of the only things he mentions is that he's coming back. He's been raised from the dead, and he's coming back to judge the earth. And that was in, the, in, in Acts 17, gospel, in the gospel presentation there. So we don't want to leave that out. He's coming back, and all people are going to be held accountable to him, to the king. All right? So that's the, the four major elements of this good news, this message of, of the gospel, and about Christ in particular. And so what, how, do, how should people respond to that? With a coup. That's right. Repentance and faith. Yeah, exactly. That's how the Bible frames it up. Repentance and faith. And are those two totally different things? No. They're not. Amen. They're two sides of the same coin, right? They're two sides of the same coin. So one can be used for the other and vice versa in the Bible. Lots of times they're, they're together. Repent and believe. Repentance is always first. And it's a command, right? Is it an invitation? It is not. Why? Because it demands a response, and he's the king of all, right? All, every knee will bow to the Messiah. So this is an opportunity for mercy, right? And it's a command to come and heed the king. Psalm 2, lest his wrath is quickly kindled. So, Yes, it is, it, there's a response is demanded, and it's repentance and faith. So what is repentance? Okay, yep, it's a turning. It has the idea of turning, right? So repentance, you're going one way, and it's the wrong way. You're walking in rebellion, and then you're confronted with your sin. You're confronted with the gospel, and now it's, okay, I need to turn around. I need to turn back to God. So if you want a great little text on this, you can write down um, 1 Thess 1.9 where Paul's describing how the Thessalonians turned to God, this is his language, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So they were worshiping something. They were, they were, they were staking their life on a certain thing, idolatry, that's not God. They were confronted by that with Paul's gospel. They turned from these dead idols to serve the living and true God. Right? And every human being is an idolater. By default, because we're in sin. So we all have idols we need to identify and turn from. Okay, to serve the living and true God. So that is repentance. It's a turning. And what is faith? What is faith then? How would we describe that? We can describe faith really simply. You don't have to overcomplicate it. It's just taking God at his word. So taking God at his word. What God has said is yielding to what he says above what we think or feel. His word is true. And when it comes to the gospel, it looks like receiving his testimony about us, that we're sinners and we need a Savior. And it looks like humbly and gladly receiving all that he's done for us. And then, and then learning to orient our lives according to that truth. So today, um, that's, that's really what I want to talk about, is this orienting our lives to the gospel. Like, what, what should that look like? I want us to think through how the gospel changes our lives and, and in particular, how it impacts our relationships. Okay? How it impacts our relationships. And we're going to look at three categories. We're going to look at how it impacts our relationship with the Lord first, okay, with Him. Then we're going, to look like how, we're going to look at how it impacts our relationships with each other, so in the church, other believers, and then how it impacts our relationships in the world, so with unbelievers. 
So with the Lord himself, with his people, and with the world. Okay? And just, again, this is just going to be really, really high level. So how do you, how do you think that the gospel should impact our relationship with the Lord, our ongoing relationship with him? Yeah, we come to him with boldness. That's excellent. Why, why is that? How can we come to him with boldness? Yeah, amen. And that's a crazy thought. Because any time God shows up in Scripture before sinful people, they either die or they're mercifully kept alive and they're on their face immobilized. And that God calls us to come into His presence. And we're saying we're coming boldly. How? Because we're clothed in Him. We're clothed in Christ. And the author of Hebrews says that. Hebrews 10. Boldly. We, we access Him boldly, though. We come into the Holy of Holies with boldness and confidence. Like, that is crazy, right? So, yeah, there is, a, there is a humble confidence. There's not like a brash, you know, just over-familiarity where we forget that he's king, but we come in with boldness. He's our father now. Yeah, that's excellent. That's excellent. And along, along that, I may, just, I may just say we have assurance and peace now with the father, with God. Before, we didn't have any of that, or we shouldn't have had any of that, because we were his enemies, we were in the crosshairs of his wrath. So there should have been no assurance, no peace. But now, through the gospel, if we believe the gospel, we have grounds for assurance, we have grounds for peace with God. Look in Romans 5. We're just going to have to just, just touch, touch on some of these here. I don't want to spend too long in, in these passages. but I do want to throw some text on here so you have them to to look at later. Romans 5, he's just kind of finished describing this gospel message all the way through chapter 4 and the significance of it. Then he says in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So we've accessed grace. We're in a standing of grace. We have peace. This is not something that, like, changes. This is a status of peace with God. This is a status of of entering into His his grace. And we're now kept by that. So we have assurance and peace here in Romans 5 via the gospel. It eliminates, in other words, it eliminates our anxieties. And it provides the sure foundation for a real relationship with God. We don't have to keep spinning our wheels and trying to, trying to earn His favor. It is accomplished. We have, we have a sure foundation for a real relationship with Him, and it's based on His grace. It's not based on our goodness. So that's why it's a sure foundation, right? It's based on us. We fluctuate. And so our relationship with God is going to feel like it's fluctuating. But because it's based on Christ, it's stable. And we can come to Him with assurance and peace. 
And I think this good news assures us of his consistent disposition of free and bountiful love toward us. Right? We're now at peace with God. We're not at war with him anymore. We're never to go back to being at war with God. We may disobey him. We'll talk about that. But we're not, we're not at war with him. And only God, get this, only God truly knows the depths of your sin. You don't know the depths of your sin. You don't know the depths of your blackened heart, how bad you were before he saved you, but he does. And he initiated salvation. He pursued you. He lavished you with his grace. So that means then our sin doesn't surprise him. He doesn't regret saving us because we've sinned in some particular way. Even when he's grieved and he is displeased by our sin, and he is, he is consistent in the depth of his affections toward us, and he pursues us in discipline because of his love. Right? So that's, that's all. The gospel should transform the way we're thinking about how we relate to God. He is our Father. And we need to habitually learn to look away from ourselves and, and simply entrust ourselves to him to receive his love freely And as we do that, our relationship with him grows. We love him more. We grow in our love for him. We grow in our devotion. We grow in our obedience. Why? Because he loved us first. And that's stable, steady. It's earned by Christ. And this is why, then, I think Paul can command us to rejoice always. Did you ever think about that? Because joy doesn't just spring up from nowhere. Joy springs up from hope. Hope. Rejoice in hope, Paul says. And hope is certain. It's, 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 a, it's a stable foundation. Again, I'm just still talking about this foundation, this assurance and peace we have, this foundation for real relationship with Jesus. So our, our joy springs up from this because it, it's always there. We've been, we've been restored and united to God through His Son. And we can have this joy and have this hope even when life's painfully difficult. It can't be taken away. So, assurance and peace, I think, on the front, front end. And I'm just, I'm just giving you a couple, a couple things here. We've talked about this, so we won't, we won't talk about it long. But another, another thing that happens in our relationship with God is the gospel motivates us to run to him in confession when we sin, not away from him. Make sense? The gospel, the good news about what God has done for us, enables us to run toward him in confession when we sin, not away from him. Why? He's our Father, yep. He's the propitiation of our sins, 1 John 2, yeah. So what does that assure us of when we come to Him? Forgiveness, yeah. It assures us that we will be forgiven. So we don't come sugarcoating our sin, blaming it on other people, you know, doing any of those, that we come owning our sin, and that the gospel actually enables us to do this. We don't fear this sort of being cast into hell because of our sin. We know that there's forgiveness, and so we come in open confession, not running away from Him. All right? The gospel also enables us, uh, it enables us and it motivates us to strive in sanctification. Right? So in Paul's day, people slanderously charged him of this gospel is so free, so good, that they're like, well, should we just sin that grace may abound? And Paul says in Romans 6, by no means. The gospel, if you understand it, 
is life for you, and it is, it is growth, it is righteousness, it, you, righteousness is cultivated in you um, via this gospel. So how does the gospel motivate us to strive in sanctification? What do you think? How does it motivate you to strive in sanctification? That's right. You have a new capacity for growth when you didn't have any before. We can't just grow. Dead people can't grow. Okay? We need to be made alive so that we can grow. Yeah, we have a new capacity, new heart, new disposition, new spirit. God's put his own spirit within us to help us grow. So, man, do you feel the motivation growing there? I mean, it's hard. Growing, becoming like Christ, progressively like Christ, is the most difficult work we're going to do. But it is, it is joyful in that we have a new capacity now because of the gospel, because of him. Yeah. What else? So, for what he's done, now let's think about what he will do. How does that motivate us? Yeah. That's right. That's excellent. Yeah. The world that's coming is a world full of righteousness. And that's the best thing for human beings, is to be righteous, like Christ. And we have the opportunity to pursue that now in him. We, we're already given that righteousness, so the, the command is to become what we are, to learn to actualize in real time um, that righteousness. It's a fight to the death, for sure, but um, there is so much hope now. We're not, and we're not striving to please God in some, like, uh, looking for a word, I don't, I don't know how to say this the right way, meteorious way, like we're, we're not like coming to him trying to earn his favor in that sense of pleasing God. We're coming to him with his favor. We want to please him as our father, but we're not pleasing him so that he's happy with us and so that he forgives us, right? That's already happened. So it really, it really just sets us on fire. We're free to be holy. We're free to be holy. So, that's sanctification. And then also, we're talking about our relationship with God. We're still in point number one here. Relationship with God. How does the gospel impact our relationship with Him? I think the gospel also, last thing I'll say on this one, is it, it motivates me to entrust myself to God's good purposes in my suffering. It motivates me to entrust myself to God in the midst of suffering and some of the most difficult experiences of my life. Why would that be the case? Yep, that's great. She said, for those of you who couldn't hear it, God's, we know that God is, is, is sovereign and He's good and He loves us, and so anything He brings in our life is to propel us toward that end, is to propel us toward more, being more like Christ, bringing more glory, having more joy, ultimately the peaceful fruit of righteousness that results um, at the end of it. So all of it, it, the gospel, as I renew my mind with what He's done for me and what He's promised to do and my relationship with Him, it enables me to trust Him when life seems difficult, when it seems like everything's going the opposite way. 
You know, right? We're tempted to doubt God's love for us. We're tempted to doubt his promises and all those things whenever we suffer. Totally, yeah, and that's another whole paradigm is that we get to enter into his, participate in his sufferings and with the hope of being glorified like him, just like he was. So that's, a, that's a, probably a whole other topic we could, we could look at. But yeah, so I just want to move, move off this point here, but it, my point here is we didn't, we're not even exhausted. We're basically touching the surface on our, how, how the gospel impacts our relationship with God. But I want you to get, I want you to get your minds thinking in that direction, okay, this should have direct impact on my daily devotional time with the Lord, how I pray, how I think of myself, how I think of my sin, how I think of pursuing Him. It should impact that. It shouldn't be like, oh, it was nice. It was a nice 10 weeks, you know? Like, that would, have, that would be a failure. That's unbelief. That's what that is. So we want it to impact our relationship with the Lord, and it, it, ought, it should. It's good news. All right, next, let's look real quick. Um, my relationship with believers, my relationship in the church. So let me just give you a few kind of, uh, kind of ideas. The gospel is the foundation for our unity with each other. It's the foundation for our unity with, with each other. In other words, we talk about creating community. Well, you can't do that. Only God has created community via his cross. He's bound us in relationships with one another. He's unified us through the cross. So we preserve it. We strive to maintain unity. That's what Paul says. But we don't create it. Christ does that. And he already has done that. So the gospel is the foundation for our unity with each other. How, how so? How is it the basis? We've all been saved by the gospel. Yeah, there's no, no one of you has, what, happens, what is disunity? Well, it's okay, when somebody thinks they're better than somebody else or somebody is a disagreement and unwilling to reconcile. So these fractures in the body, like that, that should not happen because we were all dead and we all came the same way, right? So that's the basis for the unity. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter what gender you are. It doesn't matter what social status you have. You were dead, and now you have been made alive. So Christ tolerates no pride among his people, right? We are, as we say, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So it's, it's the foundation for our unity. And then the gospel produces humility with other people, right? It's like a, another implication. How was that the case? We just said it, right? You were dead, I'm dead. <laughs> I was dead. So, we should be humble with one another, not exalting ourselves above one another, because that's just, that's arrogance, right? That's pride. That's saying that I, I brought something to the Lord, I am esteemed better than you, and so, but no, we don't, we want, to, we want that attitude to be gone. So, it produces humility, it produces patience with other people. How? Amen. We are no better than the next guy. We sin just like the next lady. Or, and so God has given us, he's always patient toward us, 
And so that he expects us to extend that out to each other in the body. And he's far more patient with us than we are than he calls us to be with other people. Amen? All right. So we don't have any excuse to not be patient. It enables us to forgive. Right? The gospel enables us to forgive people. Why is that? <laughs> yeah, we've been forgiven of so much. Our, our sin was an infinite debt to God. No matter what you may have thought about yourself or your sin, you were an idolater, you were a rebel, you were dead, and God had to go to great lengths to save you. Far greater lengths than He's calling you to do to forgive the petty offenses between one another. Even if they don't seem petty, even if, if, even if they seem horrific, it's still comparatively a petty offense. So, it enables us to, to freely forgive other people. It motivates us to serve other people. I'm just giving you some categories here. We'll keep going. Because we've been served. It motivates us to be hospitable to others because Christ first welcomed us. So then, therefore, we were strangers. We've been welcomed totally apart from any goodness we brought to the table. So now we welcome other people into our midst who are very different from us. They may be, you know, they may take advantage of us. Like, yeah, they will. Did you take advantage of Christ? <laughs> you did. So we welcome one another because we've been welcomed. Man, there's so, like, we could just keep going on this. But basically, every, every virtue in the Christian life has been, you know, it's, 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 we've experienced it, so now we're giving it out. And all of that's summarized in love, the word to, to the command of love. And you can write down um, Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, because there he, he basically says, we're to be imitators of God as his beloved children, and we're to love one another you know, as, as we've been loved by Christ. So we're to bend that love out that we've received. Okay? So again, just giving you, giving you some ideas for how the gospel should transform our relationships with one another. And now lastly, let's, let's talk about this with the remaining time we have. How should the gospel impact our relationships with unbelievers, with the world? So, what do you think? We're now motivated to share the gospel, is what she said, because we know what it did for us. So yes, we're motivated to share it. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sure, yeah, we've, we've realized it's the main thing, right? And, and yeah, so we want, to, we want to proclaim it. Yeah, excellent. I think if we, if we take a step back, all that's good, and that's, that's going to outflow, but I think fundamentally what happens in our hearts is we realize when we've been saved that we were just stealing all this glory from God. Like it was coming to ourselves, right? And now God has been mind-blowingly merciful to us. We've seen His glory, and we want that to be turned away from ourselves into Him. Like, we, we want Him to receive glory, and we want the world to see Him as He is, and we are grieved that God is not worshipped. Make sense? 
Like it, that, that, that should be one of our fundamental desires is above everything else is to see, man, we want to see this God glorified. We want to see Him worshipped. That is the best thing for human beings, yes, but that's what He deserves. And so I think the Gospel produces a desire for God to be glorified on earth, and that is the main driving motivation to share it. All right? It's not the only one, but that's the main one. We want to see the flag of Christ be planted among all the nations, right? So that they all come to, to know and obey the Lord of heaven and earth. And I think it, it then, next, obviously, what you guys are saying, it produces a love for unbelievers who are in a terrible situation, just like we were, right? It produces a love for unbelievers. And even the, even the ones that hate us, right? Even the ones that are in opposition toward us because we know that they're dead, just like we were. We know that they, they're ignorant of the truth. They're blind. They think they're free, but they are enslaved to Satan. And so there's a pity. There is a love for unbelievers. And we know what they're destined for. We know they're destined for a Christless eternity, a, an eternal hell, apart from um, apart from the mercy of God. And so, what does that love then look like? How is it expressed? That love that we have for unbelievers. Yeah. I think in a lot of the same way that we express it to believers. That's right. Copying and pasting a lot. Yep. But instead of anticipating to receive thankfulness and gratitude, we can anticipate expecting. Entitlement. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Definitely. Yeah, that was, that was excellent. We, ba- we just, yeah, everything we just said about love for the believers applies to um, unbelievers. We're commanded to love our enemies, to do good to those who hate us, because Christ loved and served us when we were his enemies. Right? So love compels us to to move toward unbelievers in love, to move toward them in service um, as we have opportunity, to do good to them as we have opportunity. But what else does love compel us to do? Love is a man, patience is a manifestation of love. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. Yeah, so that we often think about love as the fuzzies, but but love tells people truth, right? True love. If you're in a house that's burning down, and I see that you're in a house burning down, and I'm worried that you might get mad at me to, for telling you the house is burning down, I don't love you. I would I would yell at you, get out of the house. I'm going to come get you out of. I'm going to try to do everything I can to get out of get you out of the house. No, 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 the house isn't on fire. The house isn't on fire. The house isn't on fire. Yes, it is on fire, right? 
I mean, we're, this is coming for them. And so love compels us, compels us to, to put our reputations, to put our, everything on the line to try to, to, try to convince people of, of what is true. Now, there's a caveat there. Let me, let me put it this way. Love, or let me, let me say it this way. The gospel produces boldness to speak. Okay? The gospel produces boldness to speak. So it produces a desire for God to be glorified. It produces a love for unbelievers. And it produces boldness to speak. Even when we face rejection and ridicule. You can write down Ephesians 6, 19 and 20 on that. Paul prays, asks the church to pray for him in that. And he says that I may speak about it boldly. He says, as I ought to speak. So there's an ought to about our boldness. Like we ought to have boldness. So we've talked about one reason, because love compels us to be bold. What's it, what are some other reasons we should be bold? Sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we have to be careful with that. Yeah, I understand what we're saying because there is a responsibility element to salvation. But here's what I'm going to say. Here's where I think boldness is truly produced. Is we know that God is sovereign. We know that God is sovereign and that God always accomplishes what He desires to accomplish via His Word. And I think that's kind of what you were getting at is that we that we win either way in that sense, God's always going to accomplish what he intends through his word. So I, there's the human side where, like, let's say the, the burning building, I'm going to go and try to convince you that the building's on fire and get you out of there. But then there's the divine side, maybe another perspective, which God does the convincing via his spirit. And so this, this just throw some text on here, Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is, not your persuasive abilities. The gospel is the power of God. In fact, Paul, would, when he went to Corinth, he rejected eloquence and some of those kinds of things, knowing that the gospel would either be foolishness or it would be a, to Gentiles or it would be a stumbling block to Jews. Knowing that. And he went and preached the foolish gospel of a crucified Messiah because he knew that, he says, to those who are called, 1 Corinthians 1, to those who are called, it becomes the power of God. It becomes God's wisdom to those who are called. Meaning, God saying, arise to his elect via the gospel. So the sovereignty of God motivates us to evangelize. And that is the only way that we're going to have true boldness. And you see this over and over again. Man, I could point out so many texts to you on how Paul, you know, he's, he's in, in, through Acts, he's emboldened by the fact, you know, before anybody ever comes to faith, Jesus comes to him in Corinth and says, I have many of my people who are in the city. I have many people who are in the city. They haven't come to faith yet. But that motivated Paul 
to proclaim the gospel, knowing that God would save his people when they heard the gospel. My sheep hear my voice, right, John? And so they, they follow me. So I think that the gospel produces boldness for us to speak. Uh, let me just throw a few more in here, and then we'll end. The gospel enables us to respond with gentleness and grace, even in hostile situations. Think about evangelism. It enables us to respond with gentleness and grace, even in hostile situations. Flowing off of what we just said, because we know that God grants repentance. And so we can, we can just be steady. We don't have, we're not personally involved here. We know that if they attack us, they're ultimately attacking the Lord because they don't want to hear the truth. So 2 Timothy 2.25 is on is a text there. 1 Peter 3.15. Colossians 4.6 talks about this gentleness and this gracious disposition that we're to have even when we're being rejected. All right? The gospel also uh, motivates us to look and to pray for opportunities to share it. It motivates us to look and to pray for opportunities to share it. Colossians 4, 2 through 4. Paul models this. And not just to look and to pray for opportunities, but even to strategically create opportunities to share the gospel. So Paul's not just kind of hoping that he gets, to, he gets the opportunity. He goes to synagogue. He starts you know, talking with people. He interacts with them about their false gods. He's, he's going at it, right, while he's praying for these opportunities. And so let me caveat that and just say Ephesians 4.29 talks about our, our speech uh, being gracious, and he talks about as fits the occasion, okay? It's in the context of the church that we want to be edifying to, to fellow church members, but he, he gives this phrase, as fits the occasion, meaning we've got to be aware of the occasions that we find ourselves in because they're not all the same. And we need to know what's appropriate for that occasion. Let me just flesh this out for you, okay? So like a work, like you're at work, you're on the clock, you're being paid to be faithful, and you're sharing the gospel, and you're taking away from your time to be faithful at work. It's not good. That doesn't fit the occasion in that moment. There's other opportunities with that coworker. You can say, hey, let's talk about this afterwards. I would love to, once we're off, talk to you about this, you know, because there's a lot, a lot to be had here. Or let's connect later this week. Or if you have a job that that's allowable and it's not impacting your workflow, great. But I'm saying you've got to be aware of some of these, some of these situations. I think about like family situations as well. You know, it's, it's good to kind of be bold and upfront about the gospel and about its implications. But oftentimes, if, they're, if they're, they don't come to faith initially, it's like, well, then what do you do? Do you just keep ramming it down their throat every time you see that family member, every family event, every occasion? Like, not necessarily. <laughs> Um, that's not always the wisest approach. It would be far better for you to sacrificially serve them every time you see them, be gracious to them, kind to them, respond with their you know, derision and, and mockery with kindness and love. So, and I think about it as I, I then ask for opportunities. If I've already confronted, they've already, they've already rejected, and then I love, what typically ends up happening is as I love them, I earn relational credibility with them, so then they come to me with their problems. So I'm like, well, can I share with you what would be the solution to that? Because it's, it's very different than what you think, and it might hurt. And so usually they, they say, well, it's okay. Like, I know what you're going to say. Or 
um, yeah, I, that would be nice. Even if they don't come to faith in Christ, like I'm, there's a gentleness there. I'm asking sort of for their permission. They know where I stand. So I don't have to grind it out every single time um, with the people that I'm in or work relationships. So you've confronted somebody with the gospel, you know, and it's like, all right, they rejected it. Now what do you do? You know, <laughs> I got to come in to work every single day now with you right next to me. Um, so again, there's no silver bullet in these situations, but the, at the bottom line, I would just say do your best and trust the Lord. Okay? The power is in the gospel. He grants opportunities. He's going to save who he's going to save. It doesn't mean we therefore don't share, but we should take confidence in knowing that he's sovereign in salvation, not us. Okay. All right, let's just wrap it up right there. Um, one more quick thing. Sorry. The person who thinks they're, an, they're a believer, but they're not. How do you share the gospel with them? Okay? I'm not, there's no, like, formula. But what I would say is that they have to come to see that they are an idolater. Okay? So you have to help them come to see that. I mean, that's, that's in every case, right? But especially the good little Christian person that thinks that they're a Christian, and, and they, but they're living life totally for themselves. They have to come to see that. Like, until they come to see that, they're not going to repent and turn to Christ. They have to turn from something to him, okay? So the person is bearing no fruit at all in their life. I'm not talking about the weak believer. I'm talking about somebody that's bearing no fruit. We have to come alongside them patiently, lovingly, and help them see, measure their life against what the Bible says. Always, always do it with an open Bible. This is not your opinion, right? It's not, the, it's, not, it's not opinion land. This is the Bible, what it says. Let's measure it again. Let's measure your life against the Bible as fits the occasion, as you have opportunity, right? And you help them slowly come to see. And they, they might reject you for it. They may think that you're, they may call you all kinds of names. Um, but that, what, that's what love would compel us to do in these, in these close relationships. If they cut you off and they say, no more, don't want to talk about this anymore, then obviously you respect that. But um, we want to always do that with an open Bible in front of people. So I, I want to throw that in there at the very end. Uh, number one, because I had a question about it. And then um, number two, because you guys are probably surrounded by that at, at least. All right. I may have opened more cans than I closed. It's all right. We've got to get to the main service. So uh, let me pray. We'll, we'll be done. Father, thank you for the gospel. We are eternally grateful. And we'll praise you forever for it. In Jesus' name, amen.